Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. And welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason, and I am very excited today to be joined by my friends, Stuart Kaya and Graham King. Guys, welcome. I'm really excited to have you here. I'm really excited to introduce you to the dear listener out there, <laughs> the uh, dear intended today. But I have a question. Perhaps you don't know, but I always ask to David a silly question when I start. So I was like pondering through my notes today. Okay, what kind of dumb question about this book can I ask them? And it's on the first page of the book. What would be your bird of choice to spontaneously give you shade as you are helping the engineers uh, learn, like the doves do, of our dear leader? Mm. If you were, if you were, what would be your bird of choice to be more interested in your well-being than their own survival? That mm. question's on the first page of the book. Well, there's a line in the first page of the book that says the the Kim Kim Jong Il is. Um, lecturing some engineers at some province in North Korea mm. and it was a hot day so the dev spontaneously flew above him to give him shade right. because all of that propaganda shit is just so in this book yeah, yeah. so what well I guess I'm asking what kind of birds are your propaganda shit my, what are my propaganda birds yeah um let's go with the I think the can the Canada goose okay that maybe that would be the bird yeah here in Canada yeah to provide shade for well, provide all, all something. The, when all the dear citizens. <laughs> yeah, the dear citizens of Canada and the geese. Yeah. Have you ever seen, I think there's a meme out there where it's like animals that non-Canadians are scared of in Canada. And it's like a bear or a wolf or a Arctic fox or something. It's like animals in Canada, Canadians are scared of. It's just a big Canada goose. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. Every uh, time I walk through Lakeside. I know. It's like, it's a minefield. Above and below. All right, so Graham, what's your propaganda bird of choice? I think I would go with something like with a really big wingspan for a lot of shade. I mean, I think if I'm, ah. if I'm thinking shade, so I was thinking something like an eagle, maybe. Right. Like a big, like a big bald eagle. But isn't there Practical. something kind of anathema in the practicality of that to the whole point of <laughs> what the deer leader wants? Yeah, I mean that's that's true. I guess the fact that. It's not just one or two birds, but it's it's a whole smattering of a very Lock. small songbird. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just because like the dove is such like the bird of peace, the beautiful bird, mm-hmm. that even they would, uh, even that bird would marvel. I mean, there's even like I, I, there's like propaganda stories around how at Kim Il Sung's birth, the bird spontaneously sang in Korean <laughs> to celebrate his birth. I'm excited to talk about all of the. I don't know. <laughs> Your propaganda the, back, yeah. back, back knowledge. Yeah. Well, just <laughs> how much of that is in this book. I guess if I had a propaganda bird of choice, um, I mean, obviously, well, okay, you want to be really impressed by a bird that can give you shade. You give one that can't fly. 
right? <laughs> so mine would be the penguins. Okay. <laughs> I have so much power in uh, this that I can even make birds who don't fly fly to give me shade. Or they would just stand in like a big tower. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like uh, the tower in Pyongyang. I forget what it was called, but have you ever seen a picture of that tower? I haven't. Uh, Do you know I the one I'm talking have, about? I feel like I've seen a photo. It's, like it's hotel- actually quite impressive. Like, I think uh, it's called like hotel, some, like a number. Okay. That'd be a good trivia to know, but it's this like unfinished tower in Pyongyang that they just had no money to finish. Mm. So it's like uh, like two thirds of it done. Uh, and it was in a video game I played one time called Mercenaries. That's Don't be afraid to digress either. <laughs> okay. Did, did, we, did we introduce the title? Yeah. No. No, okay. <laughs> no. It's about par. Okay. <laughs> so yes, today we are doing, thank you, Stu. Stu, you know what? You could do it. What book are we doing today? (laughs) The book we're doing is The Orphan Master's Son by Adam Johnson. Published in 2013, if I'm... Winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Winner of the Pulitzer Prize, yes. 2013, probably. So, um, as most listeners to this podcast will know, the vast majority of the episodes I've done are with my cousin David, and it's only been recently I've been branching out to do some kind of on my own with guests all the time, and... Uh, I'm really excited to have both of you on because I know you're both thoughtful about literature and some of the conversations I've had with you over the last year and a half, I'd say. This particular episode came about because I think it was maybe six months ago or so, Stu and I were talking at a party and I was like, man, I haven't recorded really true fiction in a long time. I want to do some more episodes. And I was like, well, I should ask Stu because I know Stu and I talk about books sometimes. So I did, and you got back to me. Uh, I won't say immediately, but <laughs> you got back to me nonetheless. It took some time. And you brought up the idea of The Orphan Master's Son, which I was like, well, as soon as I read a little bit about it, I was like, well, this sounds like a great book to do. I think it'll be a lot of fun. And then I, did you two talk to each other about it before? And then I think you talked to me about it too, Graham. Yeah, Stu actually approached me outside of a rave at about 2 a.m. Well... <laughs> Well, I was taking a little break from dancing, sure. and uh, I don't know. We started talking about books, of all things, hmm. and he just brought it up. Doing the podcast, I think I brought up, right? I or... think it was just doing a book club Okay, that right. we were right. Yeah, because I, I was reading a book at the time. I think it was Love in the Time of Cholera, Yeah, and I was talking about how much I liked it and how much I wanted to talk to someone else about it. And our other friend, Dan, Dan Holder, who's been on this podcast, was there. Oh, uh, yes. And he talked RTF about... fame. Yeah, yeah, of, <laughs> of, of RTF fame. And a friend, friend of the pod. And <laughs> Very good friend of the pod. <laughs> and um, yeah, he just talked about how much he hated that book and thought it was uh, just a kind of fanciful bit of nonsense. So... Oh, this is fig- love in the time. Of the love in the time okay. of cholera. So I figured I figured it had to be a different book, and Stu <laughs> Stu had had this one kind of queued up. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think uh, after you had brought it up doing the podcast, I yeah, like we had connected with you, Graham, as well. And then I think we were all trying to find a book that none of us had read. Mm. And my friend Dino had just finished that or was in the middle of it and recommended it, and none of us had read it. And I think we were all pretty keen on it. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, and that's a cool reason because, well, excuse me, most of the time we've had guests on the podcast, it's either because we were doing a book or a movie that we were already planning on doing, but we knew a friend who liked that as well, so we're like, oh, you should come on and do it, and we haven't actually had that many guests, like I think the two of you probably make about the 10th 
ninth and tenth guests ever on this podcast. This is like can be episode eighty four, I think. So they've mostly just been me and David. I think this is probably the first one with a guest where it's the first time all of us have read either the book and certainly the first time like reading this author. I don't think have any of you ever read any other ones? No, I haven't. No. I don't think so. Yeah. So it's kind of an adventure in that way in that uh, when I started Really True Fiction, I had like, I don't know, 30 episodes just already in my mind ready to go. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to do Star Wars and we're going to do Lord of the Rings and we're going to do Crime and Punishment and, and Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. And I kind of am excited because I feel like now I'm at a era of the podcast where it's like okay let's just like throw a dart out there (laughs) yeah (laughs) see what it hits and we'll do that book you know it's it's a little bit more random in that way and i think that that's like uh it's it's fun and surprising a little it can be serendipitous to like wow a book i've never even heard of before so just before we get into it yeah so originally you two talked about a book club which must have morphed into like well let's do a podcast at least with this first book yeah, I can't recall exactly, but I think I must have mentioned like, oh, Luke talked to me about doing this podcast. Like, would you be interested? And maybe, maybe I imagine I would have said that to you, Graham. Yeah, Something that, like that. that sounds like how it went. I mean, again, it was a, it was a bit <laughs> of a hazy, hazy memory, yeah, sort Christian of like John Doe's in this book. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, that's a good tie in. Yeah, well, who knows? I mean, maybe this could be like a... Um, uh, a, a beginning of like a new podcast we could do where we actually do a book club or an RTF just, spinoff. Yeah, RTF. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, RTF. I, I, book I would club. love that. Yeah, yeah. I so uh, I feel like I've been reading books in a vacuum for the last mm-hmm. I don't know four years. Yeah, it's just fun to talk about them. With other I people. might digress for a moment on book clubs. I love talking about books. I think I have bona fides for that when it comes to the amount of hours I've put into editing my goddamn voice for this podcast, but I sometimes find myself reticent to join them because uh, they can blossom out. You invite more and more people, and then all of a sudden you got 10 people, and then all of a sudden everybody gets a turn picking a book, and then all Mm. of a sudden you're reading books you might not always want to read, or the discretion changes of the particular person picking the book, and then if it's a book someone really likes... I find people have a hard time sharing their real feelings about it if it's clear that somebody has a, an emotional attachment to a book. So I am more excited with this kind of format, I think, where I find conversations can be more attenuated and constructive when it's mm-hmm. a smaller group. Yeah. You know, two or three. This is why I have three microphones, not yeah. seven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, yeah, I just feel like it'd be tough to do a seven-person podcast about a book, potentially. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I like I like the the vibe of it being the first time anyone's read it too yeah yeah i feel like it's a more kind of like open totally open-eyed conversation Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah i mean this i guess uh keep your ears peeled is that the expression keep your ears open i think it's keep your grapes peeled (laughs) sure of course that's it how could i how could i forgot that i must have been raven (laughs) for the spinoff what would be called first take on book club podcast three dudes one book it's <laughs> good yeah all right just before we start i want to say a big thank you to a Stu and graham for coming on but also to all of you out there who listen enjoy the show i would say that if you like the show tell your friends uh you can give it a rating or a review on apple podcasts preferably a five star but if you uh, here's the deal if you give a one star review i'd at least or a one star rating I'd at least like a review I would like to, I would like an explanation of your hate, and that's fine. Uh, we're also on Spotify 
and Amazon Music. And if you are happen to be one of our listeners in India, we're on Ghana. We uh, we do quite well on Ghana in <laughs> India. And I never knew for the longest reason why our one episode, Michael Clayton, was doing so well. And then I realized, because I, I named that one, I am Shiva, the god of death. It's like, of course, that's why people in India would pick that one first. That's a line that George Clooney says in the movie. So, what What's the movie? Michael Clayton. Okay, I'm not familiar. It's honestly one of George Clooney's best dramatic films, I think. When we did that movie, I read a review that said, Michael Clayton is the last grown-up movie Hollywood ever made. Hmm. So, When's, When did it come out? 2007, I want to say. Yeah, really great film. Tom Wilkinson, Sidney Pollock, and I think Tilda Swinton won an Oscar, actually, for Best Supporting Actress in it. So, okay. The Orphan Master's Son. Since I actually read this book, finished this book a few months ago, I'm going to let you two give a plot rundown or a basic summary. Okay. <laughs> the book is broken into two parts. It takes place in North Korea. The first part introduces our protagonist, John Doe. And um, I guess it's essentially about John Doe. It's about life in North Korea and sort of what happens to him. Uh, it's sort of the sequence of events that's sort of unbelievable. The second part of the book is about ostensibly a different character, but really it's it's John Doe, but mm-hmm. John, Commander Ga. <laughs> John Doe as Commander Ga. John Doe as Commander, Commander Ga. And I guess, yeah, it's kind of about life in North Korea, life under that regime, ultimately, without yeah. giving away too much. I figure we'll get into uh, some of the details, but... Yeah, from what I remember... There's like at least three main parts of the first half of the book. It's Jundo, well, maybe four. Like the first part is kind of almost a prologue where he's in an orphanage, but he's not an orphan. He's the son of the orphan master, <laughs> crazily enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just realized that as I said it. That's uh, how to roll credits. <laughs> uh, and that's it. But he gets, I can't remember how exactly, but he gets kind of like, commissioned into becoming like a a kidnapper for yeah North they, Korea. they allude to like from when he's in the orphanage uh not that part of his life then at some point he i think goes gets selected as part of this like military unit that mm-hmm. works in these tunnels right under the right the demilitarized DM. zone yeah yeah and then from there he gets selected to be become a kidnapper right so then there's a section of the book where they're going to Japan and kidnapping people from there, and he accidentally kills one person, and he feels some regret about that. Uh, and then he works on a boat. Does that happen next? Yeah, he yeah. He gets, uh, he gets positioned on a fishing boat in waters sort of north of North Korea, north northeast, I guess it would be. And in between Japan and North Korea, maybe? Yeah. yeah. I can't think of it. Yeah. Yeah, there's, it's sort of this kind of like broad space of the ocean but he um is put on as a radio control operator so the fishing boat goes out and they they fish by day and then by night he is tasked to just listen to radio transmissions um that he can pick up from an antenna on the boat it's kind of, i think it's like something sort of nefarious like the the fishermen, the captain, and the other guys on the boat, like they don't, the captain in particular doesn't really want him on the boat, especially early on. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of something to do with like 
some yeah some he's like a ex- version of the secret police yeah which is weird because like the whole country is secret police yeah but he's like a secret police within the secret police kind of thing and i think he's i think they're trying to locate some piece of equipment that the japanese have or maybe that's later in the book i think that's later that's later okay yeah yeah, yeah he's listening for something yeah uh, yeah i can't remember i I feel like in the book, I mean, maybe this is bad podcasting because I don't have the exact like perfect thing right in no, front of me. But it might be bad podcasting, but it's right on brand for, <laughs> for really true fiction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I think um, how as as I remember it, like it's sort of unclear, like right. what he's like. Like is he hasn't been tasked with like this is what you're looking for. His task mm-hmm. is like you listen to the radio at yeah. night and you like pick up transmissions and you like record them yeah yeah basically but it's it's for this sort of nebulous purpose that Whereas, he doesn't really yeah. understand and the like brass the upper echelon of pyongyang will use it for something it's kind of interesting actually not to get too ahead of ourselves but it's interesting how much the like upper crust is mentioned a lot in this book like the real the real leaders in pyongyang like the closest people to the dear leader that kind of thing because it's like, you know, from the outside, we always think of North Korea as just this one monolithic entity, like with North Korea. But this book does a good job, I feel, of like giving it some strata mm-hmm. of like, oh, yeah, there's actually kind of really very different kinds of people mm-hmm. caught up in this system, which is, you know, literature is so good at that. I do remember how this section ends where he, they have this run in with an American ship and basically they lose one of their mates he runs away like he defects i think or tries to defect there's there's sort of two points they run they have a run-in with the americans yeah uh and then they have to go back the second mate i think takes sort of the fall like they have to come up with some story as to why they lost their the photos of the dear leader uh yeah kim il-sung and yeah there's like kim jong-il for context every boat in the north korean fleet has these paintings i think they are of, yeah. of kim il-sung and kim jong-il i think it, i think it's like every room in north korea yeah has those yeah something like that but but they get boarded by this american naval ship and the americans just kind of looking for tokens yeah. of them they going, steal it right? yeah well, they, they steal they, it because yeah. they, it's sort of this novelty they're like oh we we you know they want to bring it home and be like look we like took these <laughs> these funny photos they from take, the leader too. They, they take uh yeah, they take a flag, the flag as well, I think. Yeah. And there's a South Korean officer with the Americans who's sort of adamant that the Americans like arrest these North Koreans because I think they're probably in in waters where they shouldn't be. Right. Uh, He's sure that they're spies. Exactly. Which yeah. if, I mean... And the Americans probably just think they're like fishermen. Like, yeah. As they are. Both that's those, their cover. Both, both those things are true. Yeah. Really. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's true. But... Uh, yeah, there, I, I'm realizing as we're talking about the plot that one of the main themes of this book is um, unclarity, not unclearness. Oh, yeah. Like ambiguity about what to really make about What's something reality? because yeah. reality is so different from what people are saying all the time. Yeah. And I think that's like one of the, well, like you just said, that's like one of the big themes of the book. But like that's reality in North Korea is mm-hmm. this basically like this fictional narrative that can shift and change well, there's a few lines like the story is the reality exactly like, it's That's, not even yeah doctor, you don't even, doctor song you don't I even think. have to like infer it yeah from the subtext like yeah. it's a few of the lines uh so anyway this 
quote-unquote humiliation and disappearance of the second mate, they make up this grandiose story about a shark attack, and they actually get a shark to bite Jendu's arm Mm -hmm. to, like, make it look convincing. Mm -hmm. And this, to me, was the funniest part of the book, where he is, like, so caught out in his lie. They're all caught out in their lie when they get back to the mainland. Because the uh, interrogator is like, we found your... (laughs) Yeah, we found found the other guy. But he sticks to the lie. What they end up doing is they replace a different person with Jun Do, this Commander Ga, they're like, well, okay, we're going to just say you're a hero, even though we know you're lying, but we have a different purpose for you. (laughs) So you're going to like just totally take this identity of this other guy who is a hero, so we don't want to lose his heroism in the minds of the people, but he's actually a guy that like hates the leader. So I I I don't think that's how it happens. Yeah, there's... there's, Is there more in between? Yeah, there's there's more more in between between from that. So... this probably won't be the first time I say something incorrect because okay. of a lack of memory. <laughs> yeah. But basically, yeah. So in that section, he gets interrogated because he's been in the military. He's gone through this thing that they call pain training. They basically like put him through this in advance of him maybe being captured by like South Korea when he's in right. the tunnels in the demilitarized zone. And so he has this kind of mental imperviousness to pain like he has this way that he can retreat within himself and really block it out so they can't beat the real story out of him basically like he it kind of becomes his reality and so eventually they just accept it as true and i i wasn't sure i don't know if you guys had a different take on this but like when they decide that his story is true and they're like you are a hero i i wasn't sure if they're like the interrogator saying they found the second mate was like was that real or was that like a tactic 100 percent. that was my thoughts i was like when he first says it it's like oh shit the gig is up mm-hmm. like what's jundo gonna do is he gonna like crack or and i think um like at first i was like he's lying the interrogator's lying they didn't find the second mate they're just testing jundo and jundo sticks to the story but then when that section ends i was kind of like i think that they did find the second mate but the story that's better for North Korea is the story where Jun- the second mate was killed by a shark. Jundo tried to save him, was injured by a shark. Like that story is way more compelling. And the fact that the interrogator, you know, he, he beats up Jundo and Jundo sticks to the story. Like it shows how, how willing Jundo is, is to like put his body, to like sacrifice himself for that story. Mm. And I, so I think like that's like yeah. that first part and like, like where like the narrative of like what's truth, what's not, that's where that becomes most apparent, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I, th- I think that they, um, they did find him, but the fact that John Doe stuck to the story that like he was killed and I think that became the truth, you know? Reality is whatever story you give it. So then what, how does he become Commander Ga after that? Is it because he's, so, so he's made a hero as Jun Do. So he's made, yeah. So he's made a hero as Jun Do. And then shortly after they make him a hero, he's kind of swept up. There's a small part where he goes back to the, the second mate who his fate is kind of unknown, but he goes back to his wife. She kind of tends to his wounds that he's he's suffered from the interrogators. She kind of nurses him back to health. And there's a little bit of like a, ooh, what's going to happen here, like in a romantic sense. And then top brass from Pyongyang comes and 
picks up John Doe and is like, you are going to Texas right yeah for this kind of like unclear forgot that that part yeah yeah, this unclear mission (laughs) of course but you're going to because so the thing is that backtracking a little bit Mm. digressing and backtracking it's a complicated book it's (laughs) yeah so jun doe has learned english and that's like why they put him as the radio Mm -hmm. guy because he can translate english so he can actually listen to american broadcasts if something comes in in english and this is also the reason that they pick, or at least one of the reasons that they pick him to go to Texas, because he can actually speak English. I think that's that's what he goes. Uh, he goes as the translator, maybe. If yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't remember what his exact role is, and I don't know if it's ever stated. Yeah. But yeah, he basically goes on this diplomacy mission to Texas yeah. with these two other guys. Mm. Yeah, you Dr. Dr. Song. Dr. Song. And the minister, who's not really the minister. I think right. Dr. Song is the minister. Mm-hmm. And this other guy is just sort of a grunt who's acting, playing the role of the minister to try and yeah. throw off the Americans and, you know. Yeah, mm, but right? they go to they go to Texas to meet with the senator, one of the senators of Texas. And ostensibly, like, the, the mission is to try to get back I think it's Kim Jong il's like car or something. It's what it right. I don't remember. I, can't remember what, either. I thought it was like a radiation detector, something to like find uranium. Mm-hmm. That was at one point something that they were trying to get, I think. Because that happens. I think it's effectively the mission's effectively a failure. And then they fly back to North Korea. When they get back to North Korea, they, the plan lands and they're sort of all immediately taken off into separate sort of interrogation rooms. And Jen Do's asked sort of repeatedly, like, what happened? What happened? What happened? And, um, and then eventually he's, he gets in this truck, a crow, and there's these two sort of silent guards in the truck. There's a box that's, uh, I think it has like a first aid symbol on it. And it's like super unsettling to John Doe. John Doe, I think at that this point is like nervous about what's happening because what this truck, these, these are the trucks that transport people to North Korean prisons, prison camps. Mm-hmm. And so they start driving. Eventually they get to this prison camp and John Doe uh, is, and this is at this point, John Doe's imprisoned mm-hmm. in this prison camp. Um, and that's sort of, there's a few more, Things or I think that that first part of the book ends kind of right there, right? Um, and then the second part of the book, yeah, it ends right when he kind of enters this prison camp, and you realize like, okay, he's he's been sent to this yeah. this work camp for maybe life or who knows mm-hmm. how long. Then the second part of the book is with Commander Ga. John Doe is Commander Ga. Yeah, and Commander Ga. If let's see if my memory is correct on this or not, he's like a high-ranking officer in the North Korean Army. Minister of yeah, Minister of Prison Mines, um, winner of the Golden Belt, winner of the Golden Belt for the highest Taekwondo competition in yeah. the land. He defeated Kimura. Yeah, he right. defeated Kimura, the, the the Japanese. <laughs> the Japanese so challenger Kimura. He's like a big, big he's celebrity, a big right? Like he's. I don't know. It sounds like the way they're talking about this. He's like tier two after the dear leader. Like he's on the next level totally. of, of yeah. people that are they venerate in this country. We don't know this right away, I don't think. But he. it turns out he's actually like hates the leader and the leader hates him. And it's because the dear leader 
is in love with his wife, or I don't know if it's because of that, but that's part of it. And or or no, I think it was Commander Ga knew the dear leader loved Sun Moon, this actress. Mm-hmm. He didn't actually like her, but he seduced and married her just so the dear leader couldn't have her. And this uh, yeah. really pissed the leader off. Yeah. So he, it's not that he seduced her. He so he wins the golden belt yes. in this taekwondo competition, and the dear leader says, "As your reward, you right. can have whatever you want." So that's a, that's the thing. And like, uh, there's like, there's kind of this system, at least as introduced in the book. There's this like system of rewards yep. in North Korea, where if you if you are <laughs> declared a hero or a martyr or you something, I guess not. Yeah, you you can name your reward, and they'll they will basically give you even if it's another human being. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> Commander Ga wins this. Even the genie couldn't do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, wins this Taekwondo tournament and they're like, okay, you can have, what is your, your reward? And he says, I want, I want this actress, Sun Moon, right. um, to be my wife. Due to sort of Commander Ga's popularity and political pressure from that, the dear leader has to give him this actress as who's also a, a national treasure kind who's, of yeah who's yeah. like the the the, the, the actress. actress yes yeah. she acts Stars in every in every north korean movie and the dear leader this is like one of his prized possessions yeah. you know i mean well, literally all, possessions like he he yeah. he like owns her life basically and all the north korean movies most lives and all the north korean movies are like these kind of aspirational triumphs of the north korean spirit over oh, over really, top of everything yeah. right and so she she is motherless like literally fatherland. <laughs> fatherless motherland <laughs> yeah, exactly and so yeah, this, they all have great names this sun <laughs> moon is like literally the face of north korean heroism in film yeah the overcoming that yeah. that juche spirit of overcoming all of the Americans and South Koreans and Japanese who are doing everything they can, or, or even the internal people. Mm-hmm. So she's a big deal. I'm trying to remember where the chat because there's chapters that are specifically about Jundo in the prison camp, uh-huh. and I can't remember where those fit in. If those are in part one or part two, uh, so no, they're I, in part they're in part two, and it's so, and it's two, uh, if my, if I'm not mistaken. That part of the it's a it's an interspliced narrative where the interrogation scenes are supposed to be set after the climax of the book where he helps them escape. Right, and then it's, he's getting interrogated. Yeah, Commander Ga confessing. Yeah, John Doe John Doe Commander Ga yeah. confessing to what yeah. Commander Ga explaining the story. And then yes, the right. unnamed interrogator also has a storyline that we get with his parents yeah, a little bit. Totally, but mm-hmm. that happens in the timeline after yeah. the airport escape. Yeah. So summary, basically, he's, so, yeah, in, so he's in prison. Back to the start of part two of the book. <laughs> he's in the prison first yeah. for at least a year, eventually escapes. Yeah, basically, they are in this prison mine, mining for, I don't, I don't know what the original thing that they're mining coal, for maybe. is, coal, but they, they discover uranium in mm-hmm. the mine. And so Commander Ga... <laughs> Commander as the God, minister, as of, the minister prison, of prison, prison mines, mines <laughs> makes visits. <laughs> yeah, to, goes to the goes to this prison mine where they found uranium. And yeah. Jun Do is one of the one of the miners who found uranium. He was in the the vein where mm-hmm. they found uranium. And he kind of, for whatever reason, Jun Do like makes an impression on Commander Ga as Commander Ga is visiting the prison. Commander Ga basically singles him out and he's like, I want this guy to be my to be my eyes, yeah. to be my eyes and ears in the right. prison. Like this is my guy. 
Jundo takes Commander Ga to the vein of the mine where they have discovered uranium. And Commander Ga does this thing where he I it's it's a little bit unclear but he he kind of challenges him I, to taekwondo a taekwondo think, fight think, but then there's like and these is also he, good at taekwondo he, he, it's like implied through it like Com- commander ga is like a rapist yeah like he's, he's like, like a he yeah rapes. he rapes men yeah right. and so there's this kind of like it's it's sort it's written in the book like he's having a taekwondo fight with him, but I think the the sort of undertext is what that what do they call it in the book? They had a funny name. It's called for a, it. it's called like a man attack. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a man yeah. attack. Yeah. So the undertext is basically Commander Ga is trying to rape Jundo. Yeah. And Commander Ga has the upper hand on him, and then what Jundo does is he he kicks the light out. He um, uses those. He worked in those tunnels in the DMZ. Yeah, so he's good in the dark. Which exactly, and they kind of allude to that throughout. Like the Arya, book. Mm-hmm. like yeah. Arya Stark in Game of Thrones. They allude to that, and they allude to the fact that he knows Taekwondo. So mm-hmm. you kind of, as the reader, you sort of know you really because you know that he escapes. The way it's written, you know that he escapes, but then you only get this story about how it actually happens later on. So mm-hmm. you know the consequences. So then when right. you when he's like he kicks the light out, you know like. And and he kills, uh, yeah. Or he, he doesn't actually kill him. He like knocks him out and then throws the body down a shaft, a mine shaft. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't know. But if he he's doesn't dead. know if he's yeah. Dead, no, right? no confirmation. No confirmation. And he worries later on yeah. that like, oh, he's gonna come back. Uh huh. Yeah. He has this kind of old woman friend in the prison who, again, like this old woman friend, like it's it's kind of unclear if she's real or not. Do you I, think so? To me, yeah. I to me, like I read it. Did you ever play Call of Duty Black Ops? <laughs> yeah, but not a lot. Yeah. Okay, in the in the um, Call of Duty Black Ops campaign, sure. There's this like your playable character actually gets trapped in a Russian prison mine, and he meets oh. this other prisoner mm. who <laughs> who helps him escape, and then he kind of like come. He's kind of along with you for a lot of the missions and then near the end spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't played the call of duty black ops uh campaign or hasn't been able to figure out where you're going with this story. <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> the the russian guy who's been kind of at your side the whole time is actually like a figment of your imagination mm. and that's kind of how i read the old woman character because it mm. seems so he basically john doe when he's in the we're, we're really jumping all over the place yeah, here, that's but okay john yeah. doe when he's in the prison he meets this old woman character who kind of shows him the ropes right right when he arrives yeah right with, when he arrives he gets dropped off and he's sort of like you're not, it's still not clear to the reader whether it's like is he going to prison or not like mm-hmm. this woman is in the room taking these pictures of prisoners in the infirmary mm-hmm. yeah and she basically teaches john doe how to survive right in this prison like she teaches him kind of all these sort of really <laughs> barbaric ways of getting enough nourish so the prisoners are starved essentially to death in these prisons and so they they have these like really really drastic ways of getting any nourishment they can including like drinking like horse semen yeah and <laughs> and eating flowers and there's all these kind of little things yeah. that they do to just like get stay the alive they need yeah. get the nutrients they need because they're being starved to death mm-hmm. so she teaches him all of that she's kind of she's kind of with him like every step of the way which re- which is what made me feel like she wasn't a I, real person I, because I, I it wonder, seems yeah. it seems so ridiculous that in this prison mine 
this old woman is just with him at every well, turn. And, right? and that's there's a there's a very common trope of that manner, not mm-hmm. in just like in anything of like the the imaginary character who's a figment of your imagination to, as a stand-in for the subconscious part of your being that your conscious doesn't want to know it's capable of mm. or what it will do. Like your conscious brain doesn't want to know that you'll drink horse semen to stay alive. Yeah. But you need something deep down to keep you alive and to, and to like get through these like unbelievably difficult things. Like in a sense, Tyler Durden plays that role in fight club for yeah. the narrator, right? Like it's like the nasty side of your personality is manifested through this imaginary character. Although I don't remember if she was nasty or not, but just like more in with John Doe's case, like what he's willing to do to to stay alive needs some sort of like sense that it's not really him doing it. Maybe mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I totally thought that she was a real character, and I hadn't considered that maybe she was sort of a figment of his imagination, a stand-in for his subconscious. I guess the one thing that uh, maybe lends itself to her being real was when he's being interrogated. They mm. kind of his interrogators. One of them is like, "Oh, is that Professor someone?" Because she has a name like Mon Monaghan or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and, right. But I, that's compelling. I feel like she could easily be mm-hmm. sort of well. I think uh, a meta uh, a meta point about this book is that there's so much unreliability for the characters. John Doe has to stick to his story about the shark attack because, well, a he doesn't really he never he's not from a culture that's like taught him well how to deal with new information as it comes in to change your perspective. Like it's like oh this is what happened. This is what we decided what happened. This is what we got to do. But also, like, this, I feel good art and literature movies do this, where it puts us as the audience of the book in a in a similar position of, like, this kind of general sense of unreliability, right? Like, how but, do we know in any yeah. canonical sense of the character's other? Like, I wouldn't say John Doe, John Doe or Commander Ga when Commander Ga is... Or Jundo is Commander Ga. I wouldn't find. I don't find their narratives unreliable, but a, a lot of the things around them, I think, are intentionally left vague at the borders for and us I as the reader. That, and I think that's the reality in a place like North Korea. And I think that he does such a good job of like the entire time. Like you only know, yeah, like you're saying, your 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 knowledge is so limited. But it's kind of like on par with the characters, and he's he like swings your perspective around. At the exact same time as the characters. So like one example of that is when they're on the boat, when they're on the boat and the second mate is like uh, manipulating the radio antenna and they can hear the, uh, the voices, uh, they can hear like an American voice and a Russian accent. And they're like, oh, they're, they're plotting, they're up to something and they're at the bottom of the ocean. And then he swings the antenna up uh, and they say something about like, oh, the pawns are, your pawns are floating away. And then he swings the antenna up to this like light that's moving across the sky and the voices come in crystal clear and you realize it's like they're on the space station. They're on the International Space Station. Like you realize it at the same time as the characters in the book, like your perspective totally Mm -hmm. flips. And I think it, he manages to do that throughout the book, but the, the result being that you never really know what's, what's real, Mm -hmm. what's real or what's not. Because the characters, it's possible the narrator's lying to us. But it's also possible that the characters around the narrator, because I think, is half the book in first person narration, half of it's in third person narration. I think, if I if I remember well, correctly, the John Doe part is no, I think it's I all think third person. It's, well, it's, the, it's all third person. Yeah, it's all third person. The chapters from the perspective of the interrogator, interrogator. right? In the that's right. That's right. And the um, 
the loudspeaker chapters. Right. Yeah. The the propaganda chapters. Yeah. We haven't um, even got there yet. We haven't even got there. Like, trying to summarize this the, makes me realize just how complicated layered <laughs> yeah. it is. Yeah. Because then it's like you don't know if you believe. Do you believe the characters canonically as a book? Because. <laughs> We know we're reading a book, so we know we're reading an intentional thing by an author. But also, in the book, there's deception all the time by the characters. But it's like, is part of the deception in the story, or is the deception from the author to us to understand what the characters are happening? And then you have to realize that all the characters are operating under their own... psychological inconsistencies or like uh, logical paradoxes that this like has to be both a and not a at the same time for their lives so they are like communicating something that it's not Mm. even right to call it a lie because they believe it because they to to not believe what you're saying is even a a trick of the brain that they had don't know what to do with Mm -hmm. you know so it's it's just yes there are like it's like this spiral of uncertainty that could be a good episode title, Spiral of Uncertainty. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, John Doe, he kills this Commander Ga, and basically he just puts on his uniform and walks out of the prison. Walks and he's like, I'm line. Commander Ga, and everyone just accepts <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah. You do. Well, he's got the uniform. <laughs> he's got the, the uniform. What the fuck else are they going to do? Yeah. I'm not and wearing Commander Ga's uniform. <laughs> I think when Commander Ga arrived at the prison as well, he was super harsh on the warden. And so when... John Doe as Commander Gaul walks out of the prison mine. He's like, you can put that stone down. And I think maybe that's partly why the warden's like, yeah, doesn't. You're a Commander Gaul I can live with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, exactly. And, and basically, most of the rest of the book is Commander Gaul going back to his life, but John Doe as Commander Gaul and everyone just realizing it's not actually him, but we still need a Commander Gaul role. We need the Commander Gaul character, the national psyche of North Korea. So better this Commander Gaul than no Commander Gaul at all. Yeah. So John Doe just takes over his life, goes and moves in with Sun Moon, who really doesn't like him at first, but grows to like him. And he grows to like her enough that by the end, he's rescuing her and her two kids on an airplane back to America with the Texas senator who's come to visit again, this time to North Korea. Then that interrogator scene of after, because the only way uh, John Doe as Ga could do this was to not escape with them, uh, to take the attention away from the dear leader. Because we get a lot of the dear leader in the last third of the book. Yeah. So then John Doe as Commander Ga is um captured and interrogated about what happened how what what happened where's where's the famous actress what right that's Mm -hmm. and you sort of are that's slowly revealed the second part of the book it kind of i don't know i found it a little bit confusing in terms of jumping around from commander like commander ga rehashing what happened in the prison Mm-hmm. the interrogator chapters and the loudspeaker chapters as it kind of jumped around through time it all sort of came together and made sense a little bit harder to follow uh, yeah yeah me too yeah definitely yeah and should we should we talk about the loudspeaker chapters too because i think they're yeah big. those are the i had to re re look up this word i'd heard it before but so the word for the national philosophy i guess of north korea is called juche j-u-c-h-e apparently it's an etymology from a japanese word which also originally came from an english word so that's kind of funny. It means something like self-reliance, not needing the help of any other country, being able to do it your own self. But um, how it's come about in North Korea is like <laughs> this essential hero worship of the dear leader. First the great leader and then the dear leader. And I actually don't know what the moniker of the current leader is in the grand sweep of things. But like we've alluded to it before, it's like the doves. Like there's just 
it's kind of like the loudspeakers. There's this, this really poetic language around these absurd things, if you actually think about it. And, I, and one of the things I noticed grammatically about how the, the, the propaganda of Juche works is that there's all of these abstract nouns in the place of like any detail of what is happening, which makes it like fundamentally unscientific. And uh, I, I made a note of my favorite one when they were talking about the uh, the craft or the the boat. I think it was. Um, oh no, no, the 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 raft. If they had to be rescued from their boat, and the line was, "A whole plane load could fit in that raft, or the greatness of one hero." <laughs> and I feel like that is such a great emblematic example of how the propaganda lines work in North Korea and certainly in this book. So that, anyway, that's what I would preamble it with. But yeah, the loudspeaker parts. Yeah. Well, I think the implication or like the, and this kind of, like another question is like, how true is this to life in North Korea? I like, I read a bit of an afterword from the writer and he, it seems like it's like thoroughly researched and he went, traveled to North Korea, but obviously it's like, it's fictional. And like, there was some stuff he, he essentially had to make up, but I think what they're like there's loudspeakers basically throughout the country throughout all the populated cities everywhere there's loudspeakers and so there's these regular sort of radio broadcasts and that's what these chapters are which are importantly more about ritual than they are about information the role that the loudspeakers play to me is much more like hey we are everywhere Mm. and the actual content is so absurd that that it's just not what the point of it is Totally. I mean, yeah, it's sort of this, it was just propaganda, Mm -hmm. you know, I found those chapters got kind of tiresome midway through the second part. I don't know. Like I was in, I was like, I wanted to get back to commander Ga and the interrogator and like what, you know, what was happening. And I found like those were so over the top and like, they weren't really making any new points. They were obviously like satirical, like, and just showing how absurd that part of the society is i I didn't enjoy those quite as much it's the kind of absurdity that is so literally unbelievable that every new example of it feels like someone's making a joke about north korea yeah you know what i mean like i it's not from this book but i read a fictional take on the it's the the unofficial it's called dear reader the unofficial biography of kim jong-il there was a section of it where and apparently this happened in the records where the chief engineers went up to Kim Jong-il and said, we have an idea. We're going to build the second biggest tower in the world. And the dear leader like strokes his chin and then says, you know what, engineers, that is a great idea. But have you thought of maybe making the largest tower in the world? And all the architects and engineers are like, Oh my god, we that didn't even cross our minds. You truly the greatness is unknown. Like it's just like this feigned acquiescing to the most childish form of wisdom you could ever possibly come across. Like that playground level ideas of things. Like the dear leader tests all the roller coasters to make sure it's safe for all the people of North Korea. This this, this kind of thing is what's in all the loudspeaker chapters. And you're right, it does get tiresome because it's not. But but it also like makes me sad, I guess, in a way, to the extent that it's real oh, yeah. for real people in the world who have to kind of like swallow this stuff as something like the truth. Mm. That It made me sad. Yeah. I think. There's a lot of the book that is <laughs> horrifying. Yes. 
horrifyingly sad. The another point about those chapters, I guess, is that it's sort of, especially early on, it's sort of unclear. Uh, it's like it's the loudspeaker, it's this radio broadcast, and it's talking about Commander Ga and and it's sort of like what is what is this? And it's not until like right towards the end that I think the interrogator's father is like, we've been listening to this story on the loudspeaker, and you're like, okay, this is actually being broadcast. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to like fit it into the timeline, and it's it's like okay, so it's after Jundo as Commander Ga has been captured. Right. This is like the North Korean North Korean regime trying to sort of put the final stamp on this whole debacle mm-hmm. by broadcasting this story about Commander Ga and about what's happened. But earlier in the earlier, it's kind of like why? What is what is this? At least to me, I was like kind of confused by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, this might set a record for the longest plot rundown of any of a real <laughs> fiction episode ever. So congratulations. First episode, you guys setting records. Hell yeah. Again, a lot of it, we've alluded to a lot of the themes already. The uncertainty, the tragedy of it, the sadness. I guess one thing, like, yeah, well, I have thoughts, but I would invite one of you to... Uh, maybe Graham, what do you? What were some of your main thoughts about the book and the, how it made you feel? Yeah, I really, really enjoyed reading this book for how unique I felt the narrative was. Mm. I thought that the way the author conveys kind of the flimsiness of memory. And how, I mean, this is all stuff we've alluded to in the plot summary already, but how he kind of writes about John Doe's past in a way that it's sort of open to interpretation and able to be changed by certain narratives. I I was really struck by, there's parts on the kind of section in the book where he's on the fishing boat and it'll be like a really vivid description of a certain kind of scene in Jundo's life. And then it will sort of just skip ahead and not really acknowledge that it has. Like I remember there's this one point where there's a fire on the boat and they don't really talk about the fire on the boat as happening at all. It's just sort of like they're, they're, there's this there's yeah. a scene with John Doe where he's he's working on the radio or something, and then suddenly you're in the next paragraph and they're alluding to a fire that has happened, and they're like, Oh, like good thing we we got that fire under control. <laughs> seems and, like a big deal, doesn't it? Yeah, it seems like a really big deal. And like <laughs> you don't really it doesn't really like happen. It just sort of like has happened. And I thought that that was a really interesting that happens multiple times and it, it I think that's a really interesting way to sort of convey how memory works, especially in a place where it's constantly being rewritten and sort of the truth is being manipulated and spit back to you in a different way. It's like you remember some things and then some things are just kind of like out of your memory at all. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that happened in this podcast. Like, I just memory hold a huge section of the book. Yeah. And you guys had to correct me on it, right? Like, that happened within the last hour. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a good point. I just think that the the author is really good at writing that. It feels like, it feels very real at points, but then it also kind of has this fantastic air to it. And I, I just thought it was really, 
really interesting how mm. it read. Like I, I always, at some points it felt like I was reading historical fiction and then sometimes it felt very, it was magical and it was just, it was, I just always felt like I was on my toes when I was reading this book. A little book. dreamlike I, at times. Totally. And I, I just, I really liked that element. I don't think I'd ever read a book that was structured in the way that this one is where it's, it's jumping around. There's different narrators. There's different reliability of the narrators. And it's, it's just very like layered. Mm-hmm. We have Adam Johnson as John Doe as commander. Gah. Yeah. Going up and down of those levels mm-hmm. and real figuring out the right level to read it at mm-hmm. is, is not always simple. Mm-hmm. Because I found myself, again, very confused. Like, even though I remembered that Jundo was Commander Ga, many times later in the book, I was like, okay, wait a minute. Is Commander Ga alive again? Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you are, you are always, Commander Ga again or you, what? Yeah. I think especially in the, in the latter part where the dear leader is interacting with Commander Ga, I was like, I was like, do they, yeah, what you just said, like, is this the real Commander Ga? Like, why isn't anyone pointing out the fact that this is a different person <laughs> and especially the dear leader and if, if anyone can be like who are you yeah and, and i think actually what confused me and which i still am a little confused about is that there comes a point where the dear leader kind of says like how did you escape from that prison and like he alludes to the fact that he knows that it's jundo and i was not so clear on like how i mean i guess he's sort of all-knowing I wasn't so clear on, on that. My guess would have to be that the dear leader knows who John Doe is because uh, he was at least told about it from the um, Texas fiasco, mm. right? Like this, that uh, <laughs> North Korean nationals going to Texas would only ever happen if it was okayed by oh, the dear yeah. leader. And so he would have to know the identities of all the people who go. So I, maybe he saw them before. I, yeah, I guess like... what in the initial part of that second part of the book, I was kind of like, okay, like things are so unclear everywhere in this place that like no one even knows. No one even really, or like people know, oh, it's a different person, but it's like we have to accept it because reality is so like flexible. But to your point of confusion, like there's a few scenes near the end of the book where it's just, if if memory serves, it's just the dear leader and, and Commander Ga, and John Doe as Commander Ga having a conversation. So, like, there's no one else around for them to keep up a pretense about, about the identity. And mm. yet, it just doesn't really, it's like, yeah, no, you're still Commander Ga. I'm going to talk to you like you are. And, like, like you have his memories. Right? Like, you would know the things about his life from before it, you were him. And I was just like, wow, this... So is it really him again? Like, did he come back from the dead and like kill John Doe somewhere? And I missed that in the uh, narrative. It was confusing. But yeah, you're right. It's really well structured. Well, David and I have done several books and movies that at least have as a theme totalitarianism or um, kind of like an all-encompassing ideology. Actually, one of our last episodes we did was The Trial by Kafka, which is a lot of that like bureaucratic nightmare of totalitarianism and we did animal farm so we've done explicit books on totalitarianism and then it's a theme in a lot of other stuff there was a a particularly poignant thing that struck me and i wanted to get your guys thoughts on from the first bit of the book and it's when they're doing the japan raids and i think it's gill is his friend him and gill and a gill wants to defect and it's because they like see (laughs) <laughs> what you can actually have in Japan. Japan being a 
capitalistic free market country. Like there's just all these stuff in the stores for them to buy. And there's some really like cool pros about Jundo and Gil, but mostly Jundo being like, whoa, we don't have any of this shit in North Korea. And they kind of tell us that the propaganda is such that the Japanese are so jealous of the greatness of North Korea that that's why they want to fight us. Right. Like it's it's not that we're a fucking pesky nation that kidnaps them. It's that they're so jealous of the greatness of our country. And yet he gets exposed to like just basic stores there with all of these things in them. And then that point about the space station and like, oh, they tell us that the international community can never collaborate, that they're all just enemies and they're enemies of us. But here they are. There's this, you know, brotherhood of humans working up in to make in outer space. Like, that's kind of crazy. And there's even this, um, it could be apocryphal, but it's this line about Boris Yeltsin when he first came to America. It might have been before the fall of communism. And so I don't know if he was president yet, but he comes and he goes to just like a grocery store, like a Safeway. And he's blown away at how much food is there for like cheap and his lines went they had to lie to us the communist leaders the soviet leaders they had to lie to us because otherwise we would never stand for what they put us through you know and so i was i guess really impressed it made an impression on me of like the just like the the little things that you would notice if you were in a totalitarian regime that, you know, our lives are like, I mean, we walk into Safeway and it's not like, I'm not blown away by how many cereals there are, but maybe I should be, <laughs> like that kind of thing. And uh, I, I just, I felt like the book did such a, a recurring job of just putting these like little seeds of doubt in John Doe's mind about the legitimacy of his own missions, mm-hmm. you know, which is like a conflicted protagonist is usually the best one. So uh, did you guys get any of that feeling at all? Like his little bit of conflictedness? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think he like strikes me as like an intelligent guy, Jundo. With Gil, for example, Gil tries to defect and Jundo goes back and gets him. And Gil asks him like, why don't you, like you could leave too. Like, why don't you leave? (laughs) What are we going back to? And then later on, the second mate, when the second mate is defecting, John Doe like gets up and like is the first, is the one up earliest and sees him. And the second mate as well is like, well, you could come with me. Like, and it struck me that John Doe's the only character who doesn't have any other ties. Like he has no family that is going to be punished in his stead. And he does, he doesn't defect. He, he maintains his duty. So I guess, yeah, like over over the course of the story it's cl- like of all the things that happen to him it's like it leads them to the point where it's like ultimately he does rebel against the regime right and like tries to escape helps sun moon escape so i think yeah those seeds of doubt that are planted i i think that is yeah i that guess that's happening. the like how it pays off yeah at the end of the book right is him helping them escape and trying to well originally i think it's the plan is for him to escape as well yeah that's true it's like a culmination of all of that finally gets to him enough where mm-hmm. he's like seeing all the lies that are told to him by the leadership of the of the party and the suffering like he's mm. witnesses all the suffering and and it's early on he's witnessing it and it's spoken about like the orphanage the orphans he sees what they have to do 
you know, the boy, these boys who die in these horrific ways, like mm-hmm. he, he's witnessed all that. So, and then the kind of, I like, this is a trite way to say, like the unbelievably mentally destabilizing nature of how shiftless the storytelling is it, not the, not the narrator of the book, but the, the story is reality reality of of north korean life of like you go into this interrogation and you just gotta stick to your story and it'll work if the party decides that it's good enough for their propaganda for the rest of the country and it won't work if they decide it's not the thing is john doe being the smart guy that he is he probably goes into that interrogation after the shark story knowing that even if the party believed him about the shark story, they would still kill him or do something if it wasn't if if that story itself in some way wasn't convenient for some other thing they were doing. So even the lie could be not the right lie, hmm. you know. So it's like the the yeah. the kind of capriciousness and arbitrariness of what is needed by the party as a story for heroism. Like what what makes anyone a hero, right? Like, do we really do we know for sure that Commander Ga won the Taekwondo thing? Like, did anyone see it happen? Like, maybe they just needed some fucking high mem- ranking member of the party to be that good at Taekwondo, right? Because it's just so so this. I think I made a note about like it's all just external. Every data point in these people's lives is how it will affect the kind of general population's attitude about North Korea. It's all that Juche self-referential, but it's all outside storytelling of their head. Like these people don't have internal lives that they can share with anyone ever. That I think hurt me the most thinking about like how much I enjoy the freedom of being able to have my own internal life and have some people in my life close enough that I can tell them (laughs) my real thoughts about things. Yeah, that like it's really in the second part, the interrogators chapters that that's most sort of revealed maybe Mm -hmm. where his relationship with his parents is so like, like they can't, they, there is no real relationship because his parents are so fearful that whenever they're at home, they're just continually sort of referencing like everything for the great, for the dear leader, like, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and you see the interrogator sort of start questioning things. You can get in trouble exactly if your 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 picture's a little bit crooked. Mm. It's also, I mean, like obviously, people in North Korea do have internal lives. This whole topic has been one of the more like recent revelations in my mind of thinking about like something like freedom. It's like we we talk a lot about political and social freedom, which is all important. But one thing that is underemphasized is psychological freedom, like the freedom to be able to express yourself in the way that you see fit to the extent that it doesn't harm other people. And that's often where the rub comes in. But I can just imagine how I would feel if like any authority figure in my life ever comes up to me and asks me to like account for my behavior. And I have to remember my stories and stick to them, but also change them if they need me to. Mm -hmm. Like that just, that just quelches something so alive in me, I guess to think about having to do that yeah sad it's sad yeah and it it's it happens like at every turn basically in especially the first part of the book it's like every escapade that jundo has or every hat that he wears it always ends 
with yeah this kind of like inflection point where something's gone wrong and he's had the opportunity to leave North Korea and then he decides not to and then he has to he has to make up a story about what happened and then he passes the test basically and then kind of like fails upwards into this like new life that he has but it's like every time he has to he has to do that and he has to count for himself like his life changes mm-hmm. and it's yeah so it's like sort of the yeah it's like not being stable at all in kind of can't plan for anything you can't plan for anything you're 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 just like a you're just a pawn of the state basically and if it ever comes to a point where you do have to recount what you've done and what's happened you have to stick to your story then even even if they like it like it still changes your whole life mm-hmm. you know like it's like is he's never he's never the same after any time that he's brought to questioning or like reaches a point that he has to explain himself mm-hmm. and he's like got no one to talk to about it <laughs> except like us yeah the reader <laughs> you know like we're like in a weird way we're like his therapy mm-hmm. we get to yeah. we get to understand like who else knows him i guess sun moon a little bit by the end but I think there are, I think we do see some like real relationships he has. And what the, early on, I was also kind of uncertain the way he communicated sometimes around certain characters like Officer So when he was kidnapping. He was almost like, it's like, okay, this is some North Korean officer. And there are moments where John Doe is kind of like swearing or like questioning him. I'm like, how realistic is that? I don't really know. But it seemed like, and with, uh, I can't remember, Buck, was it Officer Buck? Yeah. Who? It seems like they have a genuine connection with the woman in the prison, if she's real, with Sun Moon. But yeah, I mean, uh, and like, I think how do you have a That's real... a good point. And I think, importantly, he has something like a real connection with two of the Americans, right? Totally. Yeah. That Wanda and the senator's wife oh, are yeah. both, if not exactly, like, kind to him our understanding and not just trying to merely use him for something. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's an important thing for him to realize too. It's like, oh, it's not just this foreigner. These foreigners who are, are, are the devil and so different from me are also like talking to me about things. It's not as has been advertised over the loudspeakers <laughs> about them. Mm. You know, it's like in, in a sense, it is a bit of a, it's a... <laughs> It's funny to think of it. It's kind of a story of discovery, you know. Like it's it's a it's buried a bit, but it's like um, I think why John Doe is able to try and help Sun Moon and the children and himself escape later is that he has these little discoveries, and maybe he can't always articulate to himself, but they are piling up throughout the book. So it's finally, he's just like, I, I fucking have had enough of this dear leader. <laughs> he's driving me up the wall with all of this stuff that he's doing. Yeah. It kind of connects to what you were saying about the internal lives of um, people. Uh, but there was a section, and I can't remember who who it was, but it's the part where there's a father talking to his son, hmm. and he says something about how, like, it's like we're, gonna, we're holding hands, we're walking down the street. Right, yes, right? this is ringing a bell. But if I then have to say like turn to you and then he turns to him and he starts like screaming at him or he says something about like the dear leader, something political and the son gets upset and afraid. But then the father's like, but 
inside we're still holding hands right yeah, yeah and yeah. it points to and i was trying to find it there briefly but it just points to like having to like maintain this sort of outward appearance and these outward lies where you might have to like disown your family like right you know yes. if your family becomes a criminal you might need to be like you're a criminal you're a bad person but it's like he's trying to teach his son it's like or worse inside, you might have to be the one who turns them in yeah but inside yeah. we we still love each other we, and it's like that's how that's how you have to survive you have mm. to be so that like mental model that the son right. or that the father is trying to teach his son i thought that was kind of a beautiful part in the book like mm -hmm. that in that image too like inside we're still holding hands even though what's happening outside doesn't seem like uh, it, like you're that. right it is a beautiful part it's also like emblematic of what i'm saying is like i i think it's like it, it's so psychologically untenable like that way of loving someone because how much of human life is made up of um something like daily things of showing somebody you care about them that you care about them anyone who's ever been in a rom romantic relationship realizes you can't you can't just say one time hey i love you forever so don't ever worry about it again and then not have any words of affection ever again in their lives, you know? Like, no, it's it's so much of the glue of, of human life is made up in those like, hey, I saw what you went through today and I, I appreciated that. Or, you know, it's just like affirmations all the time. Or or like those little building blocks of, of, uh, of being with someone. And whether it's romantic or, a, or a siblings or friends or father or parent, like... It speaks to, again, the tragedy of these kind of places because love is a weakness that can be exploited. It's no surprise that a cliche in movies is you don't, or, or any storytelling, is you don't, you don't go after the person, you go after their family to get what you want out of them. And that's in the book, too. That's the main reason why people don't defect. Like, mm -hmm. why they can't defect is because they know, they know that the state will put their families in these prison camps and stuff. So it is like the only thing holding their society together in a way. <laughs> is this fear of like their families getting Yeah, it's like this love love for the people that you care about and then fear that they will be punished for your bad deeds basically. Yeah, and and the shit about all of that that makes me personally angry uh, which is very minor in the scope of all of the sufferings of real people, but it, what makes me so angry is how the this Juche philosophy, and it's not Juche is unique to Korea in, in some idiosyncratic ways, but in some ways it's also very similar to other totalitarian ideologies about like worship of the leader, and we all like have to de defer to the leader because he's the true hero of the people, whether he's like God's chosen one or chosen by history or chosen by the Vogue in uh, Germany or, you know, chosen by the general council in the Soviet Union or whatever, like this, this leader worship. So this whole philosophy is like, not only, <laughs> not only do, do we imprison your family if you defect in any way, and not only do we like lie to our it's not even a lie it's just we say whatever was in our interest at any given time and that's the truth but all of it is done because you guys are great and we're great like it's not just it's like we're gonna destroy your lives and the whole reason is so that your life is better like that's essentially what it boils down to as a propaganda level it's like 
you you are making these sacrifices for your country and and you are a hero to do that Mm -hmm. and if the sacrifice you need to make is we kill you that is great for you (laughs) that's that's kind of just what it boils down to for these people and like that's what makes me angry it's just this there's it's like a lie unto death Mm -hmm. and a lie unto your family's death Mm -hmm. and this book really makes it visceral yeah what did you guys feel like so there's this character in the book she's first alluded to when john doe is on the boat listening to radio signals and he he hears the broadcast the, of these... The these, rower. The rower, yeah, the rower. The rower. The, the American rower. Yeah, so the he American hears rower. the broadcast of these two American rowers. And he because he's... One of them rows all day and one of them rows all night. And they're, based, they're trying to circumnavigate the world in a rowboat. And... He hears, so he only hears the the broadcasts of the the one that rose at night, because he's only listening to the radios at night, and he kind of like develops this fascination with the character. And then later on, it actually comes to light that something happened with her, the rower that rose during the day. Something happens to her, and she ends up dying. And the night rower gets picked up by North Korean vessels and is basically captured and brought to North Korea. And she's placed under the captivity of the dear leader. And he forces her to transcribe his, like, it's essentially his mind comp into English, and then they're going to send it to... So the whole world. So yeah, to be regaled <laughs> send it to in the his U- insights. Yeah, send it to the U.S. But I don't know. I was I was curious as to like what you guys felt like that sort of part of the story represented. Because mm. I, I was a little bit confused. Not, I don't know, confused, but it, it seemed like I, I kind of got it in the vacuum of her being a broadcast from the ship it like kind of represented this this freedom and this exploration that jundo had no idea of and it was just this like this whole world out there that he didn't have access to but then when she was brought into north korea i think i i lost the plot a little bit about what the sort of symbolism of that was or like Mm. what the intention of that was so i was just wondering yeah how you guys read into that I didn't read, I mean, I didn't read too deeply into any symbolism, but purely from the, from the perspective of the plot, she, I think she was the reason the Americans who John Doe originally meets in Texas, the Texan Senator and Wanda and the other guy. And at that time, Wanda gives him a camera, um, which is like connected to her phone in some way. But effectively, I mean, the um, the capture of the American rower is what eventually leads those Americans to return later on mm-hmm. with the plane. And so from like a plot, as a plot device, it sort of explains that, explains the return, it explains the escape opportunity. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, again, I didn't think about it too deeply. I don't know if there is a deeper meaning to... I mean, I thought it was interesting when she came back up. Because, yeah, it's like you 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 hear these radio broadcasts and it's this like curiosity it's like these women are rowing around the world and then yeah there it kind of alludes to something happens 
and then she's she's captured you it's revealed like the commander gar or someone is with the deer leader in this like subterranean bunker and he's like oh look who i have and like opens the door and it's the american rower and it's sort of like oh like there's Mm. that kind of happens throughout the book like parts earlier on like weird callbacks to things that you didn't necessarily know were important yeah and like the captain doesn't he show up in the prison yeah at one point yeah uh the captain of the fishing novel or the fishing vessel the captain i knew what you meant yeah thank you the <laughs> captain of the fishing vessel sort of becomes a father figure to john doe when he's on the boat and originally is super distrusting of him as sort of this kind of watchful eye on their on their boat eventually he comes to accept john doe especially through the sort of saga of him having to have his arm almost bitten off by a shark in order to like play up their to give them their propaganda they don't story even believe anyway <laughs> yeah exactly but he like willingly like has a shark bite off his arm so they can tell this like stupid propaganda story and the captain yeah really becomes you know like a father figure in a mm-hmm. way to jundo and then he shows up again in the prison and jundo has to stone him oh, to death. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, there's like people there's who stoning. try to escape the prison. Yeah. They Which is like the pinnacle of defeating your inner life. Yeah. Where you literally have to throw the stone that kills someone you care about. Yeah. So that that's the, yeah. that's the punishment for trying to escape the prison mines is like they they just have all the prisoners line up and stone you to death. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty horrific. Yeah. I can't remember her name, but the female prisoner who's helping him or his imagination. Yeah, it's like Monaghan or something. Yeah, because yeah. he he runs over to the captain, right, and he's like, "Captain, like," and then she's like, "You like, you're gonna reveal your, you're gonna like, you're gonna end up, you're gonna get stoned to death too." And then he like kills him, I think. Mm-hmm. So I have, I guess, I have two thoughts about your question about the American rower. The first mm-hmm. one is a little bit less literary more sociological but like i as many listeners will know i lived in i have lived for in my life for three and a half years in south korea which is obviously not north korea but it is a similar culture um historically it was only i think 1953 the war ended and they were officially separated uh, by the dmz so historically they talk about korea as one country and it, it was until the 1950s or as far as i know it was Korea, uh, South Korea is a little bit less now, but it's a very homogenous society ethnically. So I lived there on and off between 2011 to 2015. And even in cities that I lived in, every now and again, you get someone who just is like unashamedly staring at you <laughs> because you're not Korean. <laughs> you know. So I think that there is in Korean social life it's diminishing because they're getting more globalized and, and knowing about the rest of the world. But just as a, a kind of, a, certainly the world plays a fascination with foreigners. Probably how uh, it was, you know, in um, when uh, the European Europeans first made their way to North America. Like just an incomprehensibility about the, how different someone can look than you look. So I think that's part of it. And then, and then that's just like the physical first step of like oh different culture different world different people this is insane you know like this is blow this is consciousness raising if i knew what that was but then i think 
in the novel a little bit later when she is the um, prisoner of the dear leader and, and the dear leader is letting Commander Ga, Jundo as Commander Ga in on the secret uh, and talking to him about it. I guess I, it struck me as like um, in some way kind of just another test for Commander Ga. How far down the rabbit hole are you willing to go of the lie of your identity to go see this top secret prisoner that I have and talk to Marissa. And yes, I do think that there's probably some desire from the le- dear leader to have his um, autobiography and story out to the world, but also it's a kind of per- perfect propaganda prize. You know, we have an American, so we have this American delegation by the balls <laughs> to, uh, to negotiate. But I also got the sense that and maybe this is Adam Johnson trying to humanize Kim Jong-il even just a little bit. Even he was curious about the other. You know, like there was even just this curiosity in the dear leader himself about it. It's like, how could there not be? Right. In such a closed off society yeah. where like you don't see like, like yeah. How so could it's there like not be? even in the most totalitarian mind, there could still be that like spark of human curiosity. So, yeah. so yeah. I, to me, it was um, I got something kind of like existential out of it in that sense. Mm-hmm. so that's how i interpreted it yeah do you think so do you, when you said it was a test for jando as commander Ga, so do you think that the dear leader he knows it's jando and he knows that jando when he was on the boat heard these broadcasts from this american rower when he yeah. when he brought jando as commander Ga to show oh, i don't know because i, I about that. when you just said that that's what i thought you were kind of saying and it, it didn't strike me because again because that second part of the book is sort of confusing and it's kind of like the dear leader is treating Jundo as commander ga as if he's commander ga so i don't think he really knows who he is but then there was a point where he does sort of allude to Jundo's true history and asks him like how did you get out of the prison like what happened with commander ga i totally forgot about that part <laughs> i think between the three of us we could remember this book yeah <laughs> It's, there's a lot. There's a yeah, lot of layers. If you, if, a lot of yeah. If the listener hasn't been able to tell by the contents of this podcast, <laughs> it's a really convoluted book. Like there's yeah. so many things going on that are big parts of the book. It feels like when you're reading them, but then when you're rehashing it as like a plot summary, they just don't. They're not really like central to the plot. And the narration doesn't like, hold your hand. No, not you at have all. to pay attention. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's easy to lose where you are. But again, the book is so, I find, well-written and so interesting and so compelling that mm-hmm. there was it no... Wasn't read, it, it wasn't a chore. It wasn't a chore. Like, like not, I, I've read books where I'm like, I I can't keep track of what's going on. I need to reread. I never needed to reread pages. No. Like, uh, yeah, like the prose is in, it's, it's compelling. There's the, the vocabulary isn't too complicated. No. So that you're not like going to the dictionary about trying to figure out what words mean mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I think another another thing that struck me was how hard it was to predict where it was going. Like early on, he's in the orphanage talking about life there. Then he's in the tunnels. Then he's they're kidnapping Japanese people. Then he's on the fishing boat. And it was sort of like throughout that or those early parts of the book, it's like, I have no idea where this is going to go. And then eventually when he's... Um, recovering from that initial interrogation with the second mate's wife she's kind of nursing him back to health graham like you mentioned uh it's sort of like okay maybe there's like a romance that's gonna blossom here 
And the second mate's wife is convinced that she's going to be um, like assigned a new husband in the city. And when the car shows up, you don't really, you're like, okay, like, I guess she's going to get picked up here. Like, what's going to happen to John Doe? Like, where is this going to go? And then he gets picked up. At all these moments, it's kind of like, where is this going? Like, I mm-hmm. do not know where this is going to go. And kind of in this, as as the story goes on and as everything gets fleshed out, that obviously, like, gets narrow, narrower and narrower. But more than any other book, I felt like, I don't know where this story is going to go, which I thought was <laughs> that's a good one, one of the features yeah. that made it compelling for sure. Mm-hmm. So that's funny you bring that up. I, I, I only just recall this now that you talk about it, but kind of the first major segment of him post his uh, orphanage days is the kidnapping of Japanese citizens. Like they take the boat over to Japan and I, there's at least two, I think maybe three pretty intense scenes of a kidnapping. Mm-hmm. One of them is involves a, a woman's death, which he brings up several times throughout the book as a reminder. Like he just, he, this is something he never forgets, right? Is that woman, that one yeah. woman who dies in Japan as they're trying this to kidnap un- her. Unintentional. Yeah. 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 It was a, like Ultimately. she fell off a pier. She was pushed off. That yeah. was like part of the plan. They'll push her off the pier. Right. She'll get picked up by the boat. And as she's falling through the air, she says something in Japanese, and Jendo asks Gil uh, what she says, and I can't swim. That's what she says. Mm, yeah, mm, yeah, very sad. That that is actually quite heartbreaking. Yeah, I forgot about there's that. There's a lot of heartbreaking translation. There, there's a lot of heartbreaking moments. Yeah. throughout the whole book, and they uh, happen really quickly. Like, yeah, it's like it's it's <laughs> kind of like you read something, and you're like you kind of like, like you oh just kind of read by it, and then you're like, oh my god, yeah, like, what, what the hell? Just that's happened? horrible. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. how. Um, actually, I okay. mean the whole like. The infirmary at the the prison, you know, like, yeah, that's maybe the most, yeah, one of the most horrific. Totally, uh, it honestly reminds me a little bit of a, a very famous book we've done once before. I don't know if you either read Catch Twenty Two, but I haven't. I've not. Oh, that book is incredibly good. It's very funny, right? It's a comedy book. It's a satire on the army. About eighty percent of the way through the book the content shifts dramatically to very horrible things, but the tenor of the prose doesn't change at all. Mm-hmm. So you're reading it, and then you're like, wait a minute, that was a rape. <laughs> you're just like, oh, that's this is horrible. But you, you have to know the content of the words versus like mm-hmm. the prose style, mm-hmm. which is, it reminded me of that in, in, in this, as you were just saying. I was like, whoa, that, wait a minute, that's what happened? Yeah, you just yeah. said that so blithely, mm-hmm. uh, narrator. But before I lose it out of my mind, so I'm reading, you know, the 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 Japan section. It's like I don't know, thirty pages, and because I had no idea what this book was about at all. Like, not <laughs> you say you don't know what it, where it's going. Like, I had no idea. So I'm reading, it like, oh, okay, this is going to be a book about Korean espionage and kidnapping. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then like it was only after about fifteen to twenty pages after they stopped doing it, it was like. They're not really in Japan anymore kidnapping anyone. That's over? Like that seems like a pretty major fucking deal. And they're just done now? Yeah. That's not happening anymore. And that happens as we say, like about five times. Where mm-hmm. that's just like the whole like you could have a whole book about the Japanese kidnappings and a whole book about on the water and the mm-hmm. stuff in the the air astronauts and the rower and the Americans on the ship. You could have a whole book about the prison. Mm-hmm. There's like somehow there's like five or six books in this one book. Yeah. That, but it still doesn't feel under told. Yeah. Which and I it, think is a testament to the storytelling. Yeah. And it, it took me like them going to Texas was the first time 
in the story where I like clued in. I was like, this is not the whole book. Like something else is going to happen. But the first, <laughs> yeah, exactly. the first like three times I was like, oh yeah, this is the book. I was ready for him to be on the boat like the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Like I was Definitely. like, I was prepared for it. I was, I was here for it. Yeah. And I was liking it's it. It's so lovingly was, described. Yeah, totally. That you're just like, oh, okay. I think the parts on the boat was where my interest was peaked for the first time where I was like, mm-hmm. felt invested in the story and especially with those sort of perspective swings like the space the the space station mm-hmm. hearing those voices i thought that that section that paragraph was really beautiful mm-hmm. it's funny because the boat it's almost the most i don't think boring is the right word but not a lot happens mm-hmm. on it it's definitely the part of the book where he's just kind of he's just he's just listening to the radio and and he's observing what's what's going on on a yeah, North Korean like a, fishing boat. It's like it's not a it's not a very plot heavy yeah. section. No, like it's very it's very it's kind of it's just they're vibing. Yeah, I think we'd be remiss to not talk a little bit about Sun Moon mm-hmm. in in this uh, the venerable episode. Sun Moon. Yeah, the venerable Sun Moon. Mm-hmm. Do you guys re- do you remember any of the other movies that she was in? Uh, Father no, but I'll look mind. some up. <laughs> <laughs> there's there, some there, good ones. Yeah. yeah. The, the Every titles, time I yeah. came across the titles, I was like, I have to remember these. I like, could probably just like scour this book for titles for this podcast. Just steal them. Like out of yeah, context, yeah. Orphan Master's Sun titles at Really True Fiction. <laughs> yeah. There was a, another connection to Sun Moon. The first time we hear about Sun Moon is when he's on the boat, I think. Essentially, all the sailors have tattoos of their wives mm. on their chest. Yeah, that's right. Because that's they're pretty gone important. for so, so and much And doesn't he the, get a tattoo of her before? He, he becomes Commander Ga? Yes. Oh, uh, yes. He's given a tattoo. And I think maybe that's symbolically when he's accepted into the crew. as Because well. like yeah, Graham right. mentioned, uh, early on, like the captain is wary of him. He's sort of this government official type person. He's not really a government official, but he's you know, kind of a spy who's been assigned to their boat. They don't really want him there. But then as they're boarded by the Americans and then as the second mate defects, he kind of shows that he's like, he's with them, you know, he's, and so eventually he's accepted into their, he's accepted as sort of a part of member of the crew. And I can't remember where it is with respect to the second mate uh, defecting, but he gets, ultimately he gets a tattoo of Sun Moon on his chest which is kind of obviously why does he do that again like he just wants one i don't think he wants one i think like the captain and the crew are like you have to. it's like Mm -hmm. you don't have a tattoo like you're on this boat you're part of this crew now right right right. and we all have it's also to if i remember it correctly it's also to kind of assimilate him in in the eyes of the americans so like when the americans come on he's a sailor as well yeah exactly like the tattoo marks him as like a member of the fishing boat to outside eyes because they know that the fishermen have these tattoos above their hearts and to the great chagrin of everybody they don't know who sun moon is yeah so they're not gonna know he's not married to her yeah yeah (laughs) so that's yeah that happens so you know who sun moon is she's this incredible yeah that's like actress, a that's a, a not a callback. What's the opposite of foreshadowing? Well, she's brought up as an entity in the story before she's a character in the book. The one line I wrote down that she says is, uh, 
I endure and endure, and then the movie ends. She's got this role in the Korean psyche as the, you know, the heroine of the country. She's in all the aspirational movies. She's also very <laughs> aware of the fact that her new husband isn't, or her husband is not her husband anymore. And she's kind of not even a pawn. Like she's just a utility feature of the Korean state. It's hard to know who puts up with the most shit in this book, Jundo or the captain or like any of the other beleaguered, but felt to me like she, I don't know, she weathered so much and yet was this like, you could read her attitude in one sense of being like a little bit, yeah, you're a little ungrateful. <laughs> like this could be worse. And almost Yeah, almost relative to many of the other characters, like in a, very privileged oh totally yeah too. she well she's literally a star yeah of the the, the country but but not really right like she's still she's just still a, used a as much as anybody else and and maybe it's sadder because she has to pretend harder than other people what do you think of sun moon uh, yeah i don't or what does that mean like i endure endure and then the movie ends mm. she's gotta live with it she's got none of her life is her own choice i guess maybe is what that means and it's the same as like everybody else but is it different if she's on a pedestal i mean i i wonder in in some sense too it's like the i endure and endure and then the movie ends it's kind of speaks to life maybe it speaks to life in north korea mm. in you endure and then you die yeah. like for so many people perhaps i don't know yeah because we don't know how much North Koreans know about the rest of the world. It's all anecdotal. It's all like defector stories that are interesting, like really interesting. But like, it's not like we have social scientists going into North Korea doing massive studies about, do you know this about this place? And like, or like how, what do you really believe? It so. seems safe to say that they they wouldn't know much about the outside world, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like that seems like a pretty safe bet. What or what role of the what role does she play in the novel? To me, she's the trickiest character, the trickiest main character to nail down. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I mean, she because you you don't really know like you don't really know what her reaction to John, John Doe as Commander Ga is going to be. And I mean, John Doe when he walks out of the prison is like he's kind of just like what like he's just going for it, right? Like he just gets into the car. <laughs> It's like, take me home. I'm going fully for <laughs> check-ins on this new identity. Yeah. yeah. I'm going gaw mode. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Graham? What do you think about Sun Moon? She seems like this really privileged character throughout the entire book. Like, she's kind of been chosen. Like, everything in her life has kind of been handed to her. And then... Near the end of the book, she reveals to Jundo, Commander Ga, that the way that she was found was that she was on a train with her mother to a prison camp, I believe, or, mm. or something of the sort. And she was singing to her mother right. back and forth to kind of like her mother was in a different car and they weren't allowed to talk, but they were allowed to sing. And so her and her mother were singing back and forth to one another in order to show each other that they're okay. And 
for some reason, like the the dear leader Kim Jong Il pulls up his train pulls up to this train that's taking these prisoners away, and he hears Sun Moon singing, and he he gets on the train. He's like, "I heard a songbird," <laughs> and basically <laughs> yeah, like right, picks right, her right. picks her out. Um, she won uh, Korea's Got Talent. Yeah, she she basically won. Yeah, Korea's Got Talent. Um, and he he picks her out and brings her into the fold and is basically like, "You're going to be my new actress. The other actress, I'll get rid of her." Which is kind of, she never was here. Yeah, she never was here. <laughs> a little bit dark. I think it's just like a, she kind of represents that even the most privileged people in that society in a totalitarian society even like the upper crust are still people who have experienced great hardship and who have been beaten down and who are and are just as at at the whim yeah totally like she's like of anything she's the national star and she's still this kind of almost a slave of the the dear leader like Mm -hmm. in his possession and doesn't have any free will of her own. Almost a bigger slave because the dear leader knows her personally. Totally. So it's, I think, in a way, to me, I read her as how high the grip of a totalitarian society extends. Mm, yeah. Like how it affects every person in it. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just like there's a lower class and a higher class. It's like everyone is suffering. Totally. So then um, how do we take, do her and Jen Doe fall in love? Is this like supposed to be one of the legit relationships that blossoms in all of this? Because it feels a little bit like a, a part of me wants to say, yeah, that they do kind of at least develop some sort of affection for each other. Mm-hmm. But it's also, it feels so just like resigned. Like Sun Moon? seems resigned like to uh, her fate so to speak yeah or... like this is my fate i guess i could do way worse than this fake husband <laughs> you know if somebody is if some non-commander ga is gonna walk up and say they're my husband you could be a lot worse than jun do ends up being you know i don't know I... it's like kind of a weird relationship to build our end of story on Right, you know, I, it was in, yeah. I, I was fascinated by it because it wasn't like a traditional couple, <laughs> to say the least. No, I mean there are moments throughout the book before that happens where um, we hear about replacement husbands, replacement wives. Prior to Jundo as Commander Ga showing up at her doorstep at Commander Ga's home. We hear about these like replacement husbands, replacement wives, and we sort of know that that's a thing in the society, in the book. So it wouldn't be so, it wouldn't be completely Hmm. bizarre for a replacement husband to appear. With respect to her being resigned to her fate, yeah, I think like what you just said, she was like picked, uh, she was picked off this train and basically like you're going to be the actress, you know, you're going to be North Korea's greatest actress. So I think there's would definitely be a degree to what she would just be resigned to mm. whatever, bef- whatever happens to her. And she's also a mother, right? She has two children, which I think, so she's got a maternal kick mm-hmm. to it as well, where she's like, 
squint. She's basically always squinting at the world around her being like, okay, I know I'm an adult. I know what kind of society I'm in, but how do I keep my children alive Mm -hmm. (laughs) in all of this? I think the relationship that develops between them to me, it seemed like genuine and eventually affectionate. Yeah, I don't. Did they fall in love? I don't know. Not really. I don't think. Could they have? Perhaps. Yeah. I think it became clear to her that John Doe knew enough and had a plan to get them out of there. Yeah. That would, and she trusted him eventually. And and I think you, as the reader, you could kind of see that developing too. Like what comes to mind is him teaching the kids how to catch birds, and mm. it's sort of insidious too because it's like he's teaching them that in case they end up in a prison camp and have to feed themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like kind of this horrific implication, but the fact that he's doing that just shows, you know, that he cares about these Mm -hmm. people. So, yeah. Are there any other characters we haven't addressed yet that matter? I feel like it's, we, we got to mention, I can't remember if it's what his, uh, like title is, but Buck. Oh, uh, yeah. Buk. Uh, comrade Book. Comrade Book. Yeah. Is, <laughs> yeah. It, is it Book? It, yeah. Okay. For, we I first... don't know. It's Comrade, though. For Com- sure. Comrade. Okay. Comrade. The Comrade Com- stops here. Comrade Book. Yeah. Book. yeah. Um, uh, he has a twin, Citizen Book. Citizen. <laughs> oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> we never meet, but yeah. we hear about it. Yeah. He's got a scar on his eyebrow that. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, and he helps. Well, Jundo, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. We first see him when they go to America because they go. There's four of them, actually. It's Jundo, Comrade comrade book dr song and quote unquote the minister who's not really the minister and comrade book is like he's he's a good guy throughout the book like he's helpful to john doe yeah i don't know i think he that's just he's worth you know he's worth a shout out Mm -hmm. um he's like uh he's like the sidekick yeah, he, he is it, like a John Doe's sidekick in this. It's in, in a way. Yeah. It's also like it, like he tries to help John Doe escape, or tries to help him help Sun Moon escape, and ultimately is killed for it, or, or not killed but captured and yeah, you know, held in this horrible yeah prison he ends or up, interrogation room. And mm-hmm. the impetus for John Doe staying behind and not trying to escape is that he needs Comrade Book to help him escape. How the plot works, like Sun Moon and her children, um, they hide in these barrels that they're bringing to the American plane. They're like North Korea. The barrels, have, I think, are full of their food. They're full, yeah, they're full of food for the starving, starving Americans. Americans. <laughs> Um, and the, the North Koreans are, that. yeah, they're don't worry, starving Texans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the new North Koreans are, are sending barrels full of, yeah, rice. If you've ever been to Texas, I'm sure the number one thing you think when you look around is, man, is everyone here so skinny? Yeah. <laughs> they need to eat. Yeah. They hide them in, in these barrels, but they need someone who's high enough in the regime to drive a forklift. Mm to bring them on a forklift into the plane that the right. Americans are taking off on. That's right. So they need Comrade Book because Comrade Book has been basically drafted to drive one of these forklifts. And Comrade Book only agrees to do it if John Doe, Commander Ga, stays behind. Because if John Doe escapes then the impetus is going to fall on Commander Book and his family. Mm. But if Jundo stays, then he can take the blame for it. Right. Comrade Book's like, I will help you, but you need to stay behind so that you can take the fall for this. Right. 
Does he say that explicitly? Yes, he does. Okay. Because I remember he also he also says like when John Doe is Commander Ga kind of brings this plan up to him, mm-hmm. he says like if you and Sun Moon and the kids try to escape, you might you might escape, but if just they just Sun Moon and the kids try and escape, mm-hmm. they'll probably escape. Yeah. He says that as well. Like yeah, he's just like it's gonna be more likely for them to escape. Mm-hmm. The probability you. theory. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then he ends up just the way that the escape happens, he ends up getting implicated in it too. Mm. And he ends up in an interrogation camp or in an interrogation bunker with Commander God John Doe. And he kills himself and his whole family also kill themselves so that they don't end up in a prison camp. Wow. Yeah. I don't he I don't think he Oh, he does. What because the peaches, right? Yeah. So does, he, how does he get the peaches? Because he's chained up in that room in this do you remember God, there's that? so much this book i don't remember <laughs> yeah He's... i don't i don't know how they get the peaches in what is i forget why is commander book what does he like about john doe slash commander god that he helps him like what is it well just... they had the relationship when they went to texas mm-hmm. which also kind of maybe brings to mind a bit of a plot hole where the deer leader would know i mean for the listener it's like Commander Ga, Jundo is Commander Ga when he returns to Pyongyang and gets dropped off at Sun Moon's house. It, their neighbor is Comrade Book, mm-hmm. which was kind of like, oh, how did Comrade Book end? Because I think eventually he, he he's the minister of something, right? He's yeah. the minister of procu- procurement. Yeah, because he, he was like some kind of like officer of procurement. That's why he went to Texas. Mm-hmm. And now he's like worked his way up. And so they're they're neighbors in the second part of the book, which is kind of like I mean, the dear leader and whoever else knows that Jundo is Commander Ga, they would kind of know that like these guys were in Texas together. This, you know, maybe this is a bit threatening. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Which makes me again think like nobody really knows that it's like, oh, this guy is not the old Commander Ga, <laughs> but nobody really knows that it's Jundo. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of my my thoughts. Mm-hmm. But again, I think that that overall point speaks more to the general theme we've talked about many times is the uncertainty. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I, I think I mentioned to you, I don't know if we chatted about before we started recording, I didn't know what was happening in the first, like, 25 pages of this book. Because if I remember correctly, and again, granted, it was about three months ago that I finished it, but the beginning of this book is, like, he's in the orphanage, right? Like, it's it's with, he's in an orphanage, but his dad is there, so he's not an orphan, but he's an orphan master's son. But I recall f- having feelings of uncertainty, even in the beginning of the book, of whether or not I'm supposed to believe this is actually his dad or not. And is he really an orphan or not? Mm-hmm. In all of this, because there's like a stigma to orphans, or there's like they're going to certain places, or it would like demarcate him as different if he were an orphan versus if he isn't and i remember thinking so what's he doing why am i so this is just all to say that i'm off kilter from the very beginning of knowing how reliable i'm supposed to know what's happening because it's like not really spelled out Mm. there's no canonical take on any section of what is the true belief of people around him. So you're right. Like 
do they even know that Jun Do isn't Commander? I mean, I, the, presumably the vast majority of Koreans who ever see him after don't know any difference because Commander no. Ga's still alive. Mm. And he's, and, and again, it's like the title of him is more important than him himself. Right? Yeah. Like the, the and the kind story of, of him. The as second this hero and the the secondary attachment is more important than the primary individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but shout out Comrade Book. He was a good guy. He was worked his way up the North Korean hierarchy. Became Minister of Procurement. Did one good thing. Whole family died. Yeah. R.I.P. Commander. Comrade you know who Book. he reminded me of? I mean, like, have you, uh, so in Animal Farm, do you know, have you either of you read Animal Farm? Yes. Yeah, so the character Boxer, mm-hmm. the the horse, right, who's like the hero of the revolution, big, strong, does all the work, still just fucked over like every other animal <laughs> when, yeah. when the leadership needs it to be that way. You know, he's he's described as a big, muscular, strong, friendly guy, and... You know, he goes the way of all of the other ones, too, mm-hmm. when they need him to. Any other... Th- I mean, we're over two hours now, so I want to be mindful of you guys' time. Yeah, no, I I just thought one kind of lasting image that we haven't even really talked about mm. from this book, the thing that every time I read it, I put it down and thought about was the autopilot, which is this, like torture device Mm. that the interrogator character in the second part of the book uses basically there's there's sort of a an old school and a new school of interrogation in the old school they're called the the pub yak and right that's right they basically beat yeah confessions out of people violence yeah Yeah. and then kill them and then they have their confessions and the the new school of thought is kind of championed by this innovative yeah, this interrogator character, he's doing what he's called, he's, he's writing the biography of people. So he's he's mm-hmm. kind of detaching people from their story. He sees the value in the stories of kind of average citizens. And so he'll coerce them into telling their whole story. He'll coerce a confession out of them. And then he'll hook them up to this machine called the autopilot, which basically electrocutes you just below death Mm. to the point where you completely lose your mind and then you go get sent out to like a rural farming community and you live your days out as like a mindless farmer (laughs) basically right i don't know it's just i think it's one it's an incredibly horrific thing and they they describe it multiple times they talk about like Mm. the electricity like licking their brain and right it's it's pretty it's horrific and it's pretty vividly detailed and there's almost this like reverence for the machine and that fate Mm -hmm. that the interrogator character describes and he actually ends up at the end of the book when they beat a confession out of Commander God, and they they are gonna basically publicly execute him in this horrible way. And he sort of sees the his his way is kind of going out, and he's probably going to be treated in much the same way. And he doesn't mm-hmm. want to turn over to this sort of old style of just killing people who have done wrong and erasing them. And so he 
ends up hooking himself and Commander Ga up to the autopilot. Mm. It's just interesting the way I think he, it's, yeah, he almost like sees it as like a blessing or like, uh, like a mercy that he's giving people yeah. to like just, you know, wipe their minds and mm-hmm. send them out to some farm somewhere. It's, more, it's a more civilized torture device. Totally. It's not even like a mercy in terms of torture. It feels like he thinks of it as a mercy in terms of like their lives. Mm. Yeah. Their lives in this regime have been so dark and so crushing <laughs> that that for him to him to alleviate them of their memories and put them in this in this place that's that's sort of i don't know kind mm-hmm. of represented by like idyllic pastoral mm-hmm. farming communities although it may it's probably just as bad as every yeah. other the way it's talked about though is like yeah it's like oh and he might find he might find a wife there and it's mm-hmm. it's written in this like peaceful way yeah. yeah i don't i don't know if i have like a point about this but i just wanted to shout <laughs> out yeah the arresting the, yeah this like this whole idea of like the this torture device the autopilot and how it like kind of just takes away your identity and your memory and it's it was just it was just very haunting to me and i i whenever yeah. i put down the book while reading that second part of it that was the part that like stuck with me i was like oh my god this well is, like, to me horrific. that's a almost almost a straightforward like analogy to juche Mm-hmm. you know of like okay here's a we actually have made a physical device that does what our social coercion also does yeah <laughs> robbing you of your ability to think critically about anything and just kind of be like a cow yeah on the on the farm yeah that whole like kind of north korean sense of like yeah it's like a little primitive to beat people into submission mm. uh, physically yeah it's like you know that's caveman shit we're the greatest country in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna zap you into it. Yeah. Whether it be physically or metaphorically. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was definitely and then and, and that's how if I'm not mis that's how Jundo dies is that machine. Yeah. yeah. In the process of being basically having his his memories erased, he is able to um, he the, turns the machine up, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, the interrogator kind of leaves his He leaves him unrestrained. Yeah, mm. he leaves him unrestrained. Mm. So he turns the dial all the way up. So he turns the dial all the way up. Right. And it, it would it would kill cool. him. But yeah, I thought that was a very haunting part of Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was chilling, for sure. Mm-hmm. I just saw you have this point about making Ga a martyr. Oh, yes. That's the very last note I made. Which I think is like the last loudspeaker chapter, mm-hmm. where it's sort of yeah. What was going through my mind? It was it was. Um, Guy is not the only character or or situation in this book where it happens, but it's like no no scenario is wasted in this culture to essentially deify anyone they need to to sell it to the people that this is happening. And it's, again, I don't think anyone's actually buying it. I mean, maybe some people are, but it's more just like, okay, (laughs) this is happening over and over and over. The official story is that Ga dies trying to, to prevent the kidnapping of Sun Moon. 
and the children by right. the Americans. Yeah. So right. the, the official yeah, story he, like, holds on to the plane wing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Like yeah. it, like uh, a la Tom Cruise from uh, from uh, Mission Impossible, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it, so it's like. Uh, he was so devoted to her, and and by extension, her representing all of North Korea, that he sacrificed himself, which again is the, the Jesus story of um, martyrdom for uh, other people. That uh, like uh, the last thing Commander God was going to do was let the Americans take away the the most cherished face in North Korea. You mm-hmm. know that kind, of, whatever the language they use in that book. I think more symbolically is just like how they just. <laughs> straight up lie again about whatever they need to as the propaganda regardless of whatever happens in reality commander god the character is killed pretty ignominiously by kicks down a mine shaft and then john doe as commander god is killed in the autopilot chair as a as a, 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 a suicide even though he was put there to be tortured and then put out to pasture and the story that everyone gets is that this that commander god died on an airplane trying to save Sun, Moon, and the kids. You know, and it's just, it's all... You craft any story you need, again, to whatever makes it better for the the idea of North Korea in the way that it's conceived by the people who get to decide what that is, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is like one person and then a couple others that he would trust. And yeah, I was like, man, yeah, like, and and then again, I guess you could see that as a more broad, like, history is written by the winners. We get very slanted views of everybody when we read about them from a historical point of view. Not really a deep point, just something I thought about as martyrdom for like. I think what I really noticed about those segments is just the kind of like absurd language used to describe the heroics the loudspeaker chapters yeah 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 just how like just when i just when gaw was i i this isn't verbatim but just when gaw was feeling his saddest the moon came out of the sky and it looked like kim jong-il's face kind of thing and he all of a sudden was inspired to go save everyone again (laughs) just like the the sweeping descriptions it's like there's no how that's what i like there's not one iota of description of how anything happens in north korea Mm. it's just what happens yeah i think those chapters were just kind of you know so over the top to just you know it's it's so obviously not the reality and i think by it's like the author was trying to like push that so much to emphasize how much it's not actually like that, mm-hmm. maybe. Yes. Just just so we don't miss it. Yeah. yeah. Well, any final thoughts on the Orphan Master's son? Anything we haven't covered yet? Not particularly. I think listeners to this podcast, this um, discussion of the book has been very kind of roundabout and <laughs> oh. hasn't revealed the whole thing. <laughs> Anyone and I... still listening to the podcast <laughs> does not give a fuck about that. Yeah. And... <laughs> I would just encourage you to read the book because yes, it, this is it's a reflection of the book. This is one yeah. we definitely would encourage people to read. I've done I've done episodes, uh, most notably Atlas Shrugged. I'm like, don't read the book. <laughs> you yeah. don't need to read the book. If you listen to this, you'll get the main ideas, and you don't need to. But this one, I I think people would be edified in reading. Mm. It's entertaining. It's an incredible story. Like I enjoyed it and thought it was amazing. Yeah, there's there's many elements of this story that we 
have not brought up in two and a half hours of talking that's about true it. we could probably do a part two yeah but we we don't need to i think people should just read it and yeah. kind of make their own judgments about it because mm-hmm. it's 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 opaque for sure like it's not in some ways it it i mean it's it's about totalitarian regimes and stuff but there's a lot of stuff that it's it, up to interpretation it, it also it also kind of mashes together genres like it's mm-hmm. like there's yeah. elements of mystery spy novel adventure romance horror mm-hmm. in a compelling way all like packed into unreliable a really narrator great a really great story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well even though the grand internet can take all of the podcasts i think it can only take one uh, of the greatness of this podcast yeah <laughs> i think the internet will only take one podcast now and it was one of this level of greatness or greater uh, I want to say uh, a minor shout out to Ranger, my dog. Maybe you've heard him bark or whine throughout this. Uh, but uh, a big thank you to Stu and Graham. Thanks for coming on. I actually feel pretty confident saying that this will happen again, whether it is on this podcast or one, uh, what would you say, three dudes, one book? Three dudes, one book. <laughs> yeah, I like it. <laughs> That'll be good. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. And um, gentlemen, may the force be with you. And also with you. Thanks, Luke. You bet.